I continue to be so excited about these uh, messages in Exodus, and tonight is certainly no different. This is such an exciting uh, text that we have here as we have Moses uh, helping the people out in the midst of a crisis. Uh, and as we study this tonight, if you were here this morning, I want your mind to make all the connections to Mark 1, 9 through 11, because there are many of them. And then you'll see that as we go. And you are right to connect those ideas up as we go through uh, this lesson tonight. Here, remember that we have Moses and he is on the mountain in chapter 32 of Exodus. We saw the golden calf scene that while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law and in particular receiving the instructions for the tabernacle and for the priesthood, the people are down at the base of the mountain and they are engaging in idolatrous worship. And Moses has come down. He uh, smashes the tablets before them, indicating the broken covenant that has been created because of their sins and tells them, I am going to now try to go up and make intercession for you. And we saw that message of intercession at the end of chapter 32. But that's not the end of the story as we would perhaps think that here God goes up on the mountain and pleads on behalf of the people and even barters for his own life saying, blot me out from the book uh, if you will not forgive. And, And God rejects that he's not going to blot Moses out from the book. And yet the problem still remains. Watch what happens now in Exodus 33 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his garments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments, from Mount Horeb onward. Interesting scene that unfolds here at the moment is as you read those first two verses and really the beginning of verse three, it sounds like everything is okay. All right, Moses, it's time to get, depart, go up, take the people with you, go and, and fulfill the promises that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to send my angel before you and it's going to drive out the Canaanites and all the inhabitants. Sounds just like Exodus 23, that this is all going to happen according to plan, except there is one major difference and in the midst of saying all right all the blessings lie ahead of you to go ahead and go into that promised land you'll notice in the middle of verse three god says but i am not going to go up with you lest i consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people a major change has happened at this moment and i want you to notice that as as difficult as those words sound That is an expression of the mercy of God. That God recognizes the character of these people and says, if I go with them, 
It's going to be the end of them. I know that they are stiff-necked. I know that they are stubborn. I know that they are going to rebel. I mean, proof positive is just what happened with this idol worship that's just occurred. We haven't even left the land yet and gone, left the mountain yet to go on the journey. I know what's going to happen. But the severity of what God is saying cannot be missed. Remember that the whole reason God has come down and brought Moses up at the mountain is in chapter 25 of Exodus and verse 8 where he tells them, I'm going to dwell in your midst and that's why you're making this tabernacle. And now God says, I'm not going to be in your midst. I'm not going with you. That can't happen. If I go with you, you are going to be consumed along the way. It's not going to work. I cannot be in the midst of these people. And I want us just to to hear the weight of what God is saying. It's easy for us to kind of read that and go, oh, God's not going to go with it. That is everything to the whole redemption story. Is that God would lead these people and be with them all along the way and protect them as they go. And now God says, I cannot go with you. The promises remain. I will be faithful to the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will bless all his offspring. But I cannot go with you. And I hope people think about what the people do in regards to that. What they say in regards to that is so important because you'll notice that their answer is not, well, at least we have the blessings of God, so that's okay. (laughs) Uh, We get to go to the promised land anyway, so that's all right. You know, God doesn't go with us. He does say that we're going to inherit the land and that'll be just fine. I think it is so valuable that in hearing this, it says it was horrible news. It was a disastrous message that is given to them. And they mourn and they do not put on their ornaments because they understand a critical point that the blessings of God are nothing without the presence of God. They understand something extremely valuable. In fact, I believe it is this moment and this heart that God is referring to. And later on, he will talk about, oh, I wish they had a heart as they did way back at Horeb. And you'll go, well, what heart was that? Because it doesn't look very good back here. But notice their response. They are cut to the heart. They are mourning over this message. And they do not look at it and go, well, at least we get to have the blessings anyway. They are broken because they recognize that sin has caused God to have to be separated from them. They are now grasping the reality of what sin looks like and what sin does. And it is so just amazing to me that they understand that the blessings are not the point, but the presence of God is the point. And it's not just about having God's blessings, but wanting to have God with them every step of the way. And I hope we would have a mind like that. That we would not think about our walk with God in terms of, well, what are the blessings that He gives me? What is the cost-benefit analysis here? And I'm just in it for all the blessings I can get out of it. The picture is that we want to be with God and that the blessings are of no consequence if that we cannot enjoy the presence of God. And that's what these people grasp at this moment is this is a disaster. We may be able to go in the promised land, but so what? We don't have God. 
This is what a true relationship looks like. It would be very poor on our parts if the only reason we were in the marriage is for what we get out of it, the blessings of the marriage. And not in the marriage for who the person is. As the essence of a relationship is not what you get out of it, but who you are with. And that's what these people understand is we cannot bear to lose the very presence of God. This is a disastrous message. And so the people then recognize that this is bad news. That God has left the presence and will no longer be with them. In our studies of Mark, we've seen what is good news, but that God has come. Your king has arrived. The Lord reigns and now is with them. But God leaving, this is bad news. This is disastrous message that is proclaimed now before the people. In fact, to communicate how bad this message is, notice the picture of what's being lost in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Notice the picture of what Things were like with God in their midst. A beautiful image of what they had that is now being taken away. The strength of the image is there in verse 11 where it says here in this tent of meeting that Moses is able to have such a relationship with the Lord that they are able to speak to one another as one would speak to a friend. That is staggering. What a staggering statement about the relationship that God is able to have with Moses. That Moses can come in and speak to God as if like a friend in that intimacy and in that honesty and in that kind of openness. And what God just now said is that can't happen anymore. You'll go on to the promised land, but I cannot go with you. I will consume you if I go ahead and continue to be with you on this journey. And this is why the people are just broken by this. Because here even the people are incorporated. Is that every time God would come and speak with Moses, it was a scene of worship. The people stand at the tent and waiting as the cloud would come down. Here is the cloud of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the presence of God coming down over that tent. And Moses is able to enter into there and speak with God. And then Moses could come out and speak to the people about the will of God. And all that now is erased because of the sins of the people who have thrown themselves into idolatry rather than loving the true and living God. It is a staggering, staggering loss that is portrayed here as the chapter 33 of Exodus opens. 
So what's going to happen next? Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Immediately, Moses says, that can't happen. I cannot lead these people alone. I can't do it. You have not told me, he says, who you're going to send with me. I'm not going to do this by myself. You need to be with us. You need to be with me. This is not something I can do on my own, but I need your presence. Moses immediately brings his case before God and says, I need to know you. I need to know your ways so that I can know if I'm pleasing in your sight. If you do not go with me, and your presence is not with me, how will I know if I am doing the right thing? How will I know if I have found favor in your sight? I do not know your ways, and therefore you must come with us. It's a very important message that he gives, is that how are we supposed to know what is what we are supposed to do if you don't come with us? How will we know if I am in favor with you, and the, the things that I'm doing are in favor with you if you do not come with us? You have to come with us. I love the passion by which Moses says, you must come. And you listen then to God's response in verse 14. God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It's interesting that the you there is singular. This is not, I will go with you all. It is Moses, I will go with you. And Moses, I will give you rest. All right, Moses, that's what God says. I will be with you. Would you have been happy with that? All right, well, God's with me. This terrible nation, <laughs> they don't deserve that. They, look at what they've done. But at least God will be with me and He will give me rest. It is amazing that Moses is not content with that message. That God says, I will go with you, Moses. And Moses then turns around and says in verse 15, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known if I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses does not turn around and go, well, that sounds good. As long as you're with me, that'll be just fine. Moses then pushes it forward and says, you have to go with the people also. You can't just go with me. You need to go with all of us. And you think how amazing it is. That Moses is pleading on behalf of the people, though he alone is the only one who has favor in God's sight. That's what it explicitly says. Moses, if I found favor in your sight, you can't do this. That's the whole basis of the point he's making is how could you do this? And you must then be with your people as well. And if your presence will not go with us, and then we're just let's not even go at all. It can't just be with me. We need you. In fact, 
What a point that he makes when he says, how can we be God's people if God is not with his people? It is not possible for us to represent you and be distinct among the nations and be the people of God if you're not with us every step of the way. God must go with the people. God must be with us so that that will show us to be the very people that you have called us to be. God's answer in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. I will go with the people, but what is the basis? Because Moses has found favor in God's sight. The basis for God to be able to stay with his people, to go with them on this journey, even though they are rebellious, even though they are stubborn, even though they are stiff-necked, even though that God knows they are going to be disobedient along the way, is only because of one thing alone. Because Moses is the one that is well-pleasing in the sight of God. It's the only reason. And since God says, you have found favor in my sight, I accept your intercession. And I will go with the people strictly because of the favor of Moses. A beautiful picture that is being given to us. And what a heart you see of Moses who pleads over and over again on behalf of the people, functioning as this intercessor between God and the people and going up before God, laying himself on the line. And God's response is because of you, Moses, because of the favor that you have, I will go with the people. Now, consider then what Moses says next. And it's important that we don't take this request out of context. It's easy to fly in right here and miss exactly what Moses is asking. We know this passage pretty well. Then Moses says, please show me your glory. What exactly is Moses requesting? And how does that fit into the dialogue that has been going on in the story? Is Moses just simply out of the blue and just seemingly sudden saying, now show me some, you know, miracle over here and okay. That doesn't appear to be the context at all. What you are witnessing in the discussion back and forth between Moses and God is Moses' deep concern that God is not going to go with him and the people. In fact, you notice, even though God says in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses' first response is, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. This is a back and forth. God says, here's what I will do. And Moses goes, you better do that because it's not going to go well for us if you don't. You have to come with us. And so now God says, okay, what you have requested, I will do. I will go with you and with the people. And I submit to you that the next statement that Moses makes is similar to the one in verse 15. That what Moses is saying is, prove 
that you are not going to abandon us on this journey. Prove that you are going to stay with us. That your presence will not leave me and it will not leave these people. Show me your glory. And the reason why I want to zero in on that request in that way is that this is not the first time we have seen the glory of the Lord in the book of Exodus. There is not something unusual that Moses is requesting here in regards to the dealings that God has had with Israel up to this point. We have seen the glory of the Lord be displayed on a number of occasions in the book so far. If you remember when the people are crying out for water and crying out for food, God's answer regarding the food is, I'm going to show the people my glory. And he comes down in that pillar and expresses how he's going to feed the people. In chapter 24, we see it again. If you remember, after we have the scene with the book of the covenant being read and all the people say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then we saw the blood upon the altar and the blood sprinkled upon the people. And we see the same thing of the glory of the Lord there as well. So in saying for Moses, please show me your glory is, I believe, a request of a demonstration of God's promise. To put it in our terminology, I believe what you would say is, would you put it in writing? (laughs) Guarantee that this is going to be the case. Show me your glory so that I know and have confidence that you will go with us every step of the way into the promised land. Because if you are not going to go with us, please do not make us go up from here. If you will not be with us every step of the way, then please show us that you will then stay with us because we don't want for you to leave us. We would no longer be your people. Now it appears to be the request. Now, what I think is interesting is what then God says to that in verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will be show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I submit to you that what God is doing is saying, I will show you my glory. You want proof that I am not going to leave you, that I will stay with you, that my presence will go with you every step of the way, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you my glory and I'm going to show it in such a way that it basically is the maximum of what human flesh can handle. I'm going to give you the most of what you can see. You cannot see my face and live, but I will show you my glory. And by this you will know that I am going to remain with you. And so this becomes this this point of just not simply saying, okay, let me bring the cloud down. But it is a declaration of I will show you my goodness. That is what is so amazing about the wording in verse 19. I will make all of my goodness 
pass before you. The benefits and righteousness and goodness of who God is. And then notice what he says along with that. Not only will you see my goodness pass before you. He says, I will proclaim before you my name. Now, you might read that and go, that's strange. He already knows the name. We've already had this discussion. Exodus 3, right? I am who I am, burning bush. We've, we've got all that down. Why are you going to proclaim the name? But remember, name is a representation of character. It's a representation of who God is. When we studied Exodus 3 and God said, I am who I am, we saw this as a totality of God in all aspects so that he is able to save. I am there, I have been there, and I am always there. And thus, because I have been with you, am with you, and will be with you, I am able to deliver. That was the message of Exodus 3. And now that very message is coming back into play again. I will declare my name, the Lord. And notice what that expression looks like in verse 19. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now we got to sit on that one for a few minutes because that's, that's a big statement there by God. Now think about this dialogue back and forth between Moses and God. And God, God says, I cannot go with you. Moses says, you have to go with us. Otherwise, don't take us up from here. God says, okay, I will just go with you alone. Moses says, if you don't go with all of us, then we're not your people. You need to go with all of us. God says, okay, because of your favor that you have with me, I will do as you've requested. I will go with you. Now, show me your glory. Prove this to be the case that we can have confidence that you will go with us. And God's answer is, my name is this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The traditional understanding in the religious world falls apart in that context. Because God's answer cannot be, well, if I feel like giving you mercy, then so be it. I am a capricious God and I have the freedom to be gracious and merciful whenever I feel like it. Would that be comfort to Moses at this moment who was very concerned that God is not going to go with him and God goes, well, I do whatever I want to do. No, that's not what Moses is looking for. That's no confidence whatsoever. To read this phrase, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and merciful to whom I will have mercy as some kind of capriciousness, some kind of willy-nilly, well, I just kind of feel like being gracious to whoever I feel like, doesn't work to the message of what God's trying to tell Moses. In fact, the message is quite the opposite. The message is, If I say I'm going to be merciful, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. And if I say to an individual, I will be gracious to you, then that's exactly what's going to happen. And if I just say to the people of Israel, I am going to show you mercy and grace on this journey, then that's exactly what's going to happen. Because I am merciful to whom I choose to have mercy. So if I say you receive my mercy, grace, and compassion, that's exactly what God is going to do. And that is the picture that God is giving here, is God is saying, 
I am going to give you the mercy and grace that you are asking for. Because God has said, the reason I cannot go with these people is not because, you know, we have moody God or something like that. That's not the point. These people are going to sin. They are going to rebel against God over and over again so significantly that we're going to lose this whole generation when we get far enough down the road. But God's not going to leave. Even though 603,548 men of war are going to die in the desert, God's not going to leave. God will remain with them. And He will show mercy on this nation by not destroying them in the wilderness as they deserve. But will show mercy and grace and compassion on Israel and another generation will rise up and God will continue to keep His word and keep His promises. The message of I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will be merciful to whom I will show mercy is that God is faithful in the face of faithless Israel. That God will be faithful even in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness. God knows they will be unfaithful. And God says, here's the proof that you know that I'm going to be with you because that's what my name is. My name reflects that very character That he is gracious, that he is long-suffering, and that he will go with them and do this very thing. I'd like to take you for a moment to Romans, because this is quoted over there. And I think it's very important to apply this message just as we have learned it to the message of Romans 9. In Romans 9, it's often taught that God is capricious, willy-nilly, Shows mercy to whomever he wants and grace to whoever he wants without any regard or understanding whatsoever. And that's not the point that's being given here. The context of this scene is very important. The question is laid out. Have the promises of God failed? Has the word of God failed? Romans 9 verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. This is the whole foundation of where these three chapters go in Romans 9 through 11. You must zero in on chapter 9 verse 6. Have the promises of God failed? Has God been unfaithful? Has the word of God not been accomplished as God said he would do? And Paul's argument then is no, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7, not all the children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are those offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He begins by laying out that God promised to bless Abraham through his offspring. But remember, there was a remnant. That's what verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 are laying out is Abraham had a whole lot of children. There was only one, Isaac, the promises came through. And Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And it's only through one Jacob that the promises come through. And so he's already identifying that the whole of Israel is not in view. But a remnant of Israel is in view such that we come to verse 11. He says, though they were not born yet, speaking of Jacob and Esau as one who had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
God's promises are going to come not because of the works of people. If we have salvation dependent upon works, then how good are you feeling right now? He says they can't come like that. In fact, the point is to show God's purpose of election, he says in verse 11. So here is the point that he's getting at as we move toward the quotation. Verse 14 then, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so many people read that and go, well, see, God just, you know, who knows who can get mercy and who receives it or not. And so it becomes predestination, it becomes Calvinism, it becomes all kinds of ideas. And that's not the message at all. The whole point that Paul is showing here is that God is merciful to his people, not because they were good and not because they deserved it. It's never been that way. They have never deserved those things. The only reason Israel has ever enjoyed any of the promises of God and enjoyed any of the blessings of God is because God said... I have chosen Israel. That's it. Because God keeps his word. Because God is faithful to his covenant. That's his very character. He said to Moses, Israel would receive mercy. And that is exactly what happened. Israel did receive mercy. The argument is simply who exactly belong as the people of God. Who exactly are the remnant? For not all Abraham's offspring participated in that. And not all of Isaac's offspring participated in that. And that's the point that he's getting at. As we zero in on this picture, it is that God has not been unjust, but that mercy then depends solely on God who has mercy. Now think about how this message pulls forward so beautifully for us today. How can you and I know if God is going to be merciful toward us in spite of our sins? Is that not a very real question that Christians have? Look at the mess of my life. I have failed again and again and again. Sinned again and again and again. Countless times. Numerous times. Uncountable. You know, as far as the solar system is away from us, there's the the weight of my sins and the, the depth of my sins, the height of my sins. So how do we know that God will be merciful to us in spite of the fact that we have all of these sins? Because God said he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And he will be gracious to whom he will show grace. God's mercy does not depend upon how good we are. It depends upon the very character of God. That's why we have hope. If hope moves to my side of the equation and depends upon my achievements, my goodness, my ability, my exertion or human will, as he describes here, I'm done. I might as well walk out of the building now. If it's going to require my effort, that's going to go really bad. The point that he makes then is forgiveness depends upon God's purpose of election. That God has decreed that he will be 
merciful. This is why I think we love this passage so much. I do. That this a passage that ends illogically, but is, because of that is so beautiful. Remember Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, there's rejection, He will deny us. But if we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. That's a staggering message. And even when our faith slips, God stays faithful. Because He has said, I will show mercy on whom I have chosen to show mercy. And I will show grace upon those that have said I have chosen grace. That's the hope that God is giving to Moses. Yes, they are faithless. And yes, they are worthy of judgment. But I will go with them. And I will show mercy, and I will show compassion, and I will show grace. Friends, God's faithfulness is our greatest hope. That's where we hang everything in our walk with God on, is that God is faithful. Why is Israel going to receive mercy though they are faithless? Because God is faithful. We marvel at it all the time when we study the Old Testament. Look how what God is doing for these people. We talked about this morning. God just keeps sending them prophets and telling the prophet, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to try to kill you. They aren't going to do anything that I have told them to do. But God remains faithful. God keeps his word. He does as he says. And what is so important about the scene that lies to us here is that the people are broken by their sin. And Moses has interceded on their behalf. And this is an important balance that sits here. Is the people being broken by their sin would be of no value if God had not chosen to be merciful to these people. You can be as sad as you want about breaking the law. Maybe you've tried that when you've broken the law. You break down to the police. I'm so sorry. And sometimes you still get the violation anyway. The only reason the repentance has any value is because God has chosen to be merciful to those who do that. The hope lies in Him. And that's why we have such a great hope is that God declares that He will go with His people because He will be merciful to those whom He will have mercy. Let's bring that forward to us and see Jesus in this. Why will we receive mercy though we are faithless, though we sin, 
though we fall short. Though we are like Romans 3. I mean, you read Romans 3, start there about verse 9. Throats are empty graves and tongues that are like vipers. And we, we, we're, we are sinful people. Why will we find any mercy? Because God's faithful to that. Because God said He will be faithful to us. That's what makes 1 John 1 9 so strong. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Why is that such a big deal right there? Because God said He will have mercy on such a situation, and He promises. That he will do that. If I, he says he will have mercy, then that's exactly what he's going to do. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But friends, that's why we need to be broken by our sins. That's why Paul later in Romans would talk about we're not going to sin thinking that grace is going to abound. There is a brokenness of heart. As we come before God and we are sorrowful for our sins. And Jesus is our new Moses who goes before God and makes intercession for our sins. And the Lord says He can continue to go with us because He will have mercy on whom He has chosen to have mercy. And because Jesus is the one to whom God could say that God is well pleased. Now, God the Father can say through this intercessor, through Jesus, I will be merciful to them because I have found favor in you. You are my son in whom I delight. That's the only reason why. And that is why you have such glorious words in Isaiah 53. As that that great prophecy of the suffering servant ends and talking about Jesus making intercession not for the righteous. He makes intercession for the transgressors. That's his role. And Hebrews 7 says that he lives forever to make intercession for us. And I believe that's why John can say we have seen the glory of God in the Son. We have seen the amazing glory of God. That God's goodness passes before our eyes. And His name, the Lord. And I will be merciful to whom I'll show mercy, and I will be gracious to whom I'll show grace. It is the greatest display of God's glory that could ever be experienced on this earth. We are wonderful, gracious recipients of something that we do not deserve but oh thank God that he is faithful even though we are faithless we'll sing invitation song and we invite you to come to a faithful God for you know that he will forgive you of your sins it doesn't matter what those sins are and it doesn't matter how vast they are it doesn't matter how many they are Or how awful they may be. That God has said that He will receive those who will come to Him in faith. Who are cut to the heart and broken by their sins. Confessing Him to be the Son of God. Confessing their sins before Him and bowing the knee to Him. In hope of eternal life. Being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to enter a glorious relationship with Him. How wonderful that is. That is not on the basis of works. 
That is all strictly on the basis of the grace of God to be willing to receive this. If you're ready to come, won't you do that now while we stand and while we sing?